0: We are in our uh, second week of the Christmas series that we began last week uh, called God Came Down. And it's the focus of the Christmas season, as it always is, in celebrating what God has done for us uh, and becoming incarnate in in Jesus, uh, celebrating God coming to earth. Uh, And so we celebrate that every year as we come to Christmas time. I mentioned last week kind of almost a little tagline for this series, that it all comes down to God coming down. That's the focus. That's the reason that we celebrate. But I also wanted to take this season in particular to also look at a few other times that God came down to earth. A few other times where God stepped into our world uh, to do some pretty amazing, powerful things. As we look over the next few weeks at times when God came down, we want to focus on what he did in that coming. And that each time as God came down, he did what we do at this time of year. He gave us a gift. And what's unique about these gifts is that they weren't just uh, for our betterment, but they were gifts that we at one time, uh, that he had blessed us with. And that in our pride or in our selfishness or in our lack of trust, we gave those away. And so God came down to return them to us. The first week we looked and saw this uh, kind of gospel in a garden, that we looked at the Garden of Eden. And how despite the giving away the gift of trust, God made a promise there. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, you probably know the story, tempted to think that God was holding out on them, that, they, that the only reason they couldn't eat from this tree that God had forbid them to eat from was that God might be scared that he, they would become like him. And, and so, of course, they give in to this temptation, they consume this fruit, and they came to not just a knowledge of evil, but the knowledge, the knowing became doing, and then everything unraveled. And yet in the midst of this, in Genesis 3.15, we see this promise of this rescuer that would come into our world, a child that would be born that would destroy Satan and his lies. And so the gift of trust, not not our lack of trust in God, but that that God could no longer trust us, was restored in Jesus. That there would be a moment where God would come and rescue us and our relationship would be fixed and, and no longer fractured anymore. And so this morning, as we go to this second gift, I want to talk about the gift of glory. Now, glory is a tricky thing. It's kind of a nebulous thing. It's kind of, we, we understand glory to an extent, but maybe can't always define it. Usually it's about light and brightness and all these things. But glory, biblically speaking, carries with it this connotation of, of a weightiness or of a worthiness. Uh, Timothy Keller said, if you put something weighty in a stream of water, the water goes around it. Why? Because this great rock you've put in there has more glory than the water. In other words, to have glory, or have the greatest glory, means that everything is oriented around you. Things go around you because of your weightiness, of, your, uh, of the glory that you have, the, the power that you have. in that. And glory, because of that, because of the, what comes with it, this weightiness, the sense of importance, is something that we really all want. It's not hard to picture ourselves up on some winner's podium somewhere or to be successful or, or to have a meaningful, well-lived life. Maybe even glory in the sense of the legacy that we leave behind. Glory is something that we all want, few of us get, but every once in a while we have a chance to obtain it. I, I still remember vividly uh, one of the opportunities, my chances for glory. I was a junior in high school and the class I had was called team sports. Pretty much a blow-off class, but as long as you're doing something physically, exercising, you could pretty much get a pass. And so, being a wrestler, I spent most of my class periods weightlifting. And there was one period where I, one day I decided to do a lift I'd only done once before. When I did it before, there was no one around to see it, so of course, being a, a high schooler, I had to get the glory in this instance. I don't know why, probably a girl was involved somewhere in the mix. Uh, but an exercise, if you're familiar with the religion, called a clean and jerk, in which you take the weight from the ground up to here, and then you push it above your head. And so this was my plan, to imagine myself through this glorious image of strength and masculinity, until I realized I grossly miscalculated the amount of weight in the middle of the lift. And so instead of everybody looking up at me, I found myself on the ground looking up at everyone else. Glory, all of us want it, few of us get it. And so we look this morning at this idea of giving away a gift of glory. We come to Genesis chapter 11. Now it's incredible to me that coming to Genesis 11 from where we were last week, that just in a mere eight chapters from where we had been last week uh, to seeing the entrance of sin into our world, that things have already gone so far off the rails, gone so terribly wrong because of sin and its destructive effects in our world. With the knowledge of evil, people became evil. And eventually to the point where that evil could no longer be redeemed. And yet in the midst of this, there was hope. And this hope was in the person of a man named Noah and the relationship that he had with God, the faith that he had in God. And so you probably know the story if you grew up in church or are familiar with the kids' stories that we often teach of Noah and his family entering into this ark. With at least two of every animal, male and female, and some others in addition to that, that God would send this rain and and storm and cataclysmic flooding for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, Noah gets off of the ark and God gives him again this promise, this covenant, that never again would he destroy the earth in that way. But amazingly, just two chapters later, after the story of Noah, we come again to a point where humanity has lost its focus on God. And that's the situation that we come to this morning. Last week, I mentioned that one of the traditions in our family is to read the Christmas story uh, every Christmas. And I want to do that uh, going through these stories of God coming down uh, through this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll you'll be familiar with why I like this book so much. But I think it just brings new insight uh, to these stories that maybe we've heard over and over again and put some of them in different ways that we can uh, view them in certain ways that uh, we see God at work and what he's doing. And so this morning I want to come uh, to the story uh, of the Tower of Babel. It's in Genesis chapter 11 and we'll get to the actual, you know, our adult text in a little bit, but I want to read this story first uh, to get a new sense of how we understand what's happening here. It says, Noah and his family lived in the land And his children had children, and those children had more children, and then those children had even more, well, you get the picture, until there were lots of people on the earth once more. Now, back then, everyone spoke exactly the same language, so you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything, because you could say hello to anyone, and they knew what you meant. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home, and will be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea, and let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said, we'll say, look at us up here, and everyone will look up at us, and we'll look down on them, and then we'll know that we are something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy, and everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew higher and higher until it soared above the city touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered. We're the ones. See what we can do with our very own hands. They were quite pleased with themselves. But God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him, but God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept on like this, they would only destroy themselves. And God loved them too much to let that happen. So he stopped their plans. One morning they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like such a lovely morning and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say pardon to check if you'd heard right because no one understood that word either. It wasn't easy to work together after that, as you can only imagine. People were always quarreling and fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle and becoming grumpier and grumpier, until at last they were all too cross to keep on building and just had to stop. After that, people scattered all over the world, which is how we ended up with so many different languages to this day. You see, God knew. However high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase, they needed a rescuer. Because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase, it was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down to them. And one day it would. As we think in terms of glory this morning, I think it's very important to make this note. That glory is something that we never possess, at least not possess on our own. Glory belongs to God alone. But God allowed us to be a part of his glory from the very beginning of creation. Psalm 8 says about people, about humanity, God made them a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. God created this amazing earth and he gave us a share of responsibility and a share in his glory. But of course, if you're anything like me, you might not always like to share. Uh, one of my friends, Luke Witte, uh, said one of the biggest lies ever told was that we grow out of the terrible twos. And I think we have a harder time sharing than we like to admit. And so as we grapple for glory, what I want to point out this morning is that the enemy of glory is the selfishness of pride. The enemy of glory is the selfishness of pride. Because that's really what the story, the story of Babel, of this city and of this tower and of these different languages, that's what it's really all about. That we took our place in God's glory, that he had given us the, the piece of work and responsibility that he had for us, and we wanted more. And we exchange it for this selfish pride. And you've probably heard someone say before, and maybe even said to yourself, this idea of, you know, sometimes I struggle with pride. But I think being prideful is not really something that we need to struggle with. We're pretty good at it. It's not really a struggle. You know, pride, we pride ourselves on the things that we own or the things that we do, the things that we make. And it turns out this is not a new phenomenon. This is an ancient epidemic. In Genesis eleven four, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, the one thing that pride will always tempt us to do is to do exactly that, to make a name for ourselves. For them, it was to build a city, a place for themselves in this tower that others might see them and see their glory, see how important they were, see their weightiness, that everything would be oriented around them. And there's nothing wrong with building a city or a tower in itself. But for them, the problem was the issue of pride. And as pride often does, it led them to a disobedience of what God had commanded them to do. Way back in the very beginning, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God gave Adam and Eve a purpose. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then again, in Noah, as they they step off the ark, him and his family, they say again, be fruitful. God says again, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. But instead of obeying this, this, this mission that God had given them, here the people decide that they would rather undertake this mission of their own. Let's build a city, otherwise we might be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let's build a city, otherwise we might accidentally do what God had called us to do. Because we know that moving and scattering can be scary. It's full of uncertainty and danger. And so rather than fill the earth and enjoy the blessings of God's creation, the people decide to rest in the security of this city they would build for themselves. A city is safe, a city is secure, it has fortified walls and common goals and their strength in numbers. But God doesn't want his people to trust in their own strength, their own self-sufficiency. God wants us to trust in him. And this is where our pride often gets us to a point where we throw away our share in the gift of God's glory. For them, it wasn't just a city, but it was also this tower to make a name for themselves. But they would disregard not only the commands of God to bring glory, uh, to, not feel, to, to not bring glory to Him by spreading out and filling what, fulfilling what He had called them to do, but they, achieved, they seek to achieve their own glory. And that's really what the danger of pride is. The sin of pride leads us to disregard the share of God's glory that we do have, in favor of trying to have it all. And if you were here with us last week, you saw that the broken trust that came when we disobeyed the command that God gave us. Is that the struggle of trust is that we is whether or not we can believe in God, that we can believe God is true to what he says. And if that's the struggle of trust, and I think to define the struggle of pride of glory, is, is not whether we can believe in God or believe God, but whether we can be God ourselves. Pride leads us to say, I don't need To listen to God, I'll just make myself God. I'll make myself the rock and the river in which everything orients itself and goes around me. And instead of making the name of God great, we focus on making ourselves promoted and great. And so how does God respond in these moments when we do this? What does God do when rather than enjoying the blessings of sharing in his glory and power, we try to take it for ourselves? In this instance, if it were me with this tower, I would go down and like flick their little Jenga tower over. Pew! Like send all the things flying. And stomp on their city like an anthill and send it tumbling like a toddler in its bricks. But it's when we threw away this gift of glory. In favor of pride. Even then, God comes down. And he comes down to give it back. Verse 5 of Genesis 11, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if it's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. They will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. I love that where they ended up, scattered over the face of the earth, is where they didn't want to be what God, but what God wanted for them the entire time. But it's interesting in how we get there, because when you first look at this, it's easy to think, or maybe when you read this, if you read this, like I did when I was a kid, you know, understand it, it's like, is, does God, is God threatened here? Like, is he actually worried that, that people will reach heaven in this tower and like cast him off the throne? But I think there's a very subtle and, and important nuance here. It says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And I think, I think Moses, in writing Genesis, is being a little snarky here. Like this tower, as big as it might be to the people who are building it, is so small, so insignificant to God. He's like, I, I think they're tinkering with something down there, but I, I can't quite see it from up here. Let's go down to get a closer look. Because of course God is not threatened. God in his glory, the glory is his alone. And the only way that we have any of it is because he gives it to us. But then God does something that, again, at first glance, might look kind of petty. He comes down and he confuses the languages. The construction is halted because all, for, for them it's, just, it's all gibberish as they're talking to each other. And again, you think, was God really so afraid of their progress that he had to confuse their languages to protect himself? But I don't think God was afraid of what they could do to him. I think he was more afraid of what we might do to ourselves. I think in this act, God is protecting us. Because with city walls come territorial disputes, and it makes insiders and outsiders, and wars are waged, and sides are drawn, and corrupt kingdoms arise, and dangerous diplomacies take place. And the more that, that power and might and fame and ingenuity and technology is centralized in the hands of sinners, the more evil will ensue especially adding pride to the mix when we begin to believe that nothing is impossible for us and we set ourselves up as the kings and queens of our own lives. And I think what we see here is not a petty act of divine temper but a powerful act of divine grace. That the disruption of the construction saved them from their own corruption. You see, we wanted to make a name. Whether we do it in this tower or we do it in our daily lives, we want to make ourselves number one. And we want to find security and sufficiency without God and to make it on our own And So in our pride, we tell God, we don't want to share in your glory. We want all the glory for ourselves. And because that glory belongs to God and God alone, he humbles us and he saves us from ourselves, in this instance, merely by confusing their languages. But What I love about the story of the Bible is that we, as we see it progress, we know that it won't be this way forever. Because God doesn't just take away our, our pride. He gives us back our glory in exchange. The Bible tells us of a time where we will share in God's glory once more. And we will do it with one tongue, one language. Because Jesus came down to show us what the glory of God really looks like. In John 1.14 it talks about Jesus coming into our world. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because he came, Revelation 7 tells us, John gives this vision. He says, after this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and crying aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These languages are a barrier to us, but it's no barrier to God. And though we threw away our share in His glory for our own foolish pride, one day that glory is restored to us, because in one voice we acknowledge it as His. See, we all want to become great, like we all in some way want to make a name for ourselves. You think, maybe, I I don't want that. I don't want to become some kind of rich, famous Hollywood icon. But all of us want to make a name for ourselves as fathers, as mothers, as husbands, as wives, as faithful citizens, or leaving this legacy of people remembering us for what we've accomplished. But the question is, how can we do that kind of stuff? Because that's not all bad. How can we do that in a way that honors God? How can we not focus on our own selfish pride, but instead honor God by sharing in His glory? And in the very next chapter, after the story of this tower, of this city, I think we get the answer. It's a man by the name of Abraham. In Genesis 12, it says, God told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. We have this whole group of people that seek to make their name great on their own. In the very next chapter, God says, Abraham, I'm going to do that for you. But what makes Abraham different? And why to Abraham does God say, I'm going to make your name great, when the people of Babel tried to do it and he confuses their language and he halts it and it stops it in its tracks? Well, Abraham was a man of faith. He knew that glory belonged only to God. And he just had a share in it. He knew that his security didn't rest in cities, but in God alone. And I think it's interesting that while all the people of Babel tried to stay in one place to consolidate their strength and to have this power in numbers, the very first thing that Abraham is told is to go. To leave your father and your household and to go where I'm going to show you. In other words, God's saying, I want you to be the one that scatters and to raise up this nation around you that will be scattered all over the world. See, Abraham shows us that if you want to make your name great, then you have to make the name of God great first. The temptation of Babel is really the temptation of every era of human history. Will we make a name for ourselves, or will we be obedient in making the name of God great around us? And that's really the choice that we have this morning. Will you live a life of trying to make your own name great, or will you try to make the name of God great? Will you try to steal the glory that you never have a chance of obtaining or basking in? Because it's God alone. It's God's alone. Or will you, like Abraham, make the choice of faith? To trust that God is who he says he is. That he knows what he's doing. And that we have the opportunity to be a part of his family. A part of his kingdom. A part of what he is doing to make him known in our world. Will we trust in God or our own man-made securities? Will we praise God for his great name or live a life that we try to make our name great apart from him? You see, we have an opportunity in our very short lives to spend them making the name of Jesus famous. Not in a sense where he has throngs of adoring fans who are empty-hearted and infatuated with him, but people who are truly, desperately needing him, following him, making him their king and their lord. This is what it means to make Jesus famous in our world. I want you to know that you have a Christmas present this season. That God has come down, come for Christmas, and left you a gift, a gift of glory. It's the gift of being a part of his kingdom by acknowledging Christ as king. And my hope and my prayer is that when you open this gift, that we would find and acknowledge that the glory is never about us it's always about him. Let's pray that we would do that now. <clears throat> Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. and We think in terms of glory. God, it comes back to me what we talked about last month with your, this, this veil that was part and we get to see part of who you are, your power, your majesty, your grandeur, your presence. God, all of that to me comes crashing into this moment of thinking about your glory. And when we understand how big and majestic and powerful you are, it's laughable that we would ever try to to obtain that glory for ourselves. It would destroy us. But God, in your grace and your goodness and your mercy and your love for us, you have allowed us to have a share of that, of becoming a part of something bigger than ourselves, a part of, of what you are wanting to do in our world. God, I pray that you would help us to resist that selfishness of pride and trying to make our own goals, and our own name great, trying to have our own priorities outside of you. And that we would seek to make you known in our world. Others might see your glory and have a share in it as well. To experience the weightiness of being a part of your kingdom and a part of your people. To give you all praise and glory and honor and power. God, we thank you for Jesus with all of that glory of heaven came down and he put on human flesh and he walked in our world and he experienced what we experienced and yet he did it in a way of perfection of perfect relationship with you and he showed us what it means to have a relationship with you god and through his death and his resurrection he opened the door for us to experience the weight of your glory and the love of a father God, I pray this Christmas, this season, we would remember what it means to make your name great. That you might have the glory that is yours. I pray this in Jesus' name.